Hey there, guys and gals, it's me, El Capitan Muerte himself, Captain Death, here to tell you guys about an exciting new announcement I have that I'm going to put online here for a couple of the episodes. We have a new merch store up on redbubble.com, www.redbubble.com, backslash people, backslash El Capitan Muerte. Uh, you know, buy a sticker. It's like three bucks. Have have fun. You know, you do you. Uh, anyways, uh, moving on to the show. Uh, thank you all so much for your patronage, and stay spoopy. So yeah, in Rise of Skywalker, if we don't get some butt shots of Rey, then I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be pretty upset. Anakin, I'm pretty disappointed in you. No, Master, look, gotta go into Geonosis and kill the chosen one, Master. I don't think that's right. Ahsoka, what are you doing? I'm sucking his dick. My, my. That is a good Padawan. <laughs> Anakin, you never sucked mine. Anakin, are you bothered when I put my left hand up to my face like this? My, my. <laughs> Does How it make me look inquisitive? <laughs> I hate that you can do that voice so Oh, long. yes. I trust Hondo. <laughs> Wink. <laughs> That's great. Oh, I have some stories to share. Let's jump into some stories real quick. The first thing that I found was posted by shout out to Kitty um, in reference to your last episode of Spire in the Woods. I had told a story about <clears throat> selling myself sexually oh, in yes. order to have dinner with someone, and you told me that I should be totally fine doing that and continue doing it as much as I want to. And Kitty actually sent us this. It's funny that you should mention sex work because in New Zealand, they were the first country to decriminalize it in 2003 with a Prostitution Reform Act. And um, she is both the cleaner and the massager at one of these local agencies. Oh. <laughs> and, uh, and has been for the last 10 years. She kind of takes care of everyone there. And um, apparently uh, has people that listen to the show there. I think. Awesome. I'm sure that's made a stable economy. For New Zealand. <laughs> I, I, no, and I mean it. And I'm going to level with you. I think I should visit New Zealand. <laughs> I'm going to I'm gonna double level with you and yeah. say I'll go with you. That's great. Let's go together. <laughs> so, um, Kitty, I hope you're ready because here we come. And, um... But li- I'll only talk in this... Literally. I'll only talk as Obi-Wan from the Clone Wars. <laughs> I hate it. <laughs> we also have some announcements to make. Um, our super fan, Star Eve, on SoundCloud. <sighs> Apparently, you're her favorite reader. She could listen to you all day. She says this type of shit all the time. She's like, oh, Tenron, you're my favorite to listen to. I love listening to your stories. You read so well. Hmm. And, well, um, I have to respond <laughs> and say that... In Perhaps. one episode, apparently, you got really mean and yelled at frowns a little bit, and it can be taken a little kinkily, a little sexily, and uh, Star had said something along the lines of, like, holy shit, Tenron, when you get mad and yell at frowns, it makes me wet. What? 
What? You no. You don't believe me, do you? No, I don't. Then read the fucking comments that Star leaves behind on your episodes. On SoundCloud. On SoundCloud. It's pretty funny. Um, yeah, man. She's she's left a couple messages on the Facebook. She's a real big fan. Um, shout out to Jamie. Uh, we also got a cool message uh, from another guy today um, who, who recommended a story for us to... Let me guess. I make him wet, too? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so... There... What am I doing? He recommended a story for us to read. We're gonna read that on a on an upcoming episode. I think, I, I think I'm gonna do that with uh, where am I at some point. It might even be the next episode mm. at some point. So we we're getting a lot of cool fan mail recently. A lot of cool fan messages. I always like having this element of the show. Billy fucking Wilkinson. He messages me. All the time, he told me that if we make it to episode 200, he's gonna get the Captain Death cartoon tattooed on his butt cheek. <laughs> um, that makes me really happy. You know, that's the type of stuff I live for. You know, that's funny. I, I was, I, I was thinking if I ever get a tattoo, I the first tattoo I would want is my logo. <laughs> because With to you, <laughs> because to you. It has you, meaning. You treat it as like both your like gamer tag logo and your uh, your lots of pasta logo because it's like it's it's your gaming personality, it's your enthusiasm, it's your yeah. creativity, it's also your dark side. Mm-hmm. You know, it's uh, it's an enigma, but it's also a fun design. So I'd probably want to retouch it a little bit before then that's what i said to billy i was like no no no. let me draw something else but it'll be the same character i'll, I'll draw something else though let me do like i would probably give him like a version of that Cap- okay. captain death you know i i've pointed this doesn't carry over to the podcast but i pointed to a really cool mike mignola-esque piece of art that i did of a skeleton with a crown holding a gun uh, he's supposed to be the uh, <coughs> one of the four horsemen, specifically the horseman of death. So yeah, man, we have some cool fan mail. I've been getting a lot of pictures of people posting their their stickers, like showing me where their stickers are. Someone put it on a cork board. Someone put it on a laptop. Another person put a Captain Death on their uh, their wallet. Mm. I, think, I think that was pretty funny. Yeah, so keep that shit coming. You guys you guys make my week sometimes with the shit you say. The shit that comes out of your dirty, dirty mouths. Um, I love all of our listeners. Um, there's obviously something wrong with all of you. <laughs> so, we are here today. This is going to be part four of five. Um, you know, we are approaching the spire steadily. Yeah. Because uh, What's-Her-Face got fucked up. Scary Carrie got fucked, dude. Uh, I know that... She was in a coma, she came out of it, now she has, like, a terrible stutter and can't form her thoughts really well. Yeah, and 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 she was... At the end of the last episode, she was all, like, bells, 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 bells. And it's just like, oh, fuck! Let's get the spooks started. I'm, I'm gonna be honest. What comes away with me after reading the story each time is just how cringy the his the, sexual nature the is. narrator is his uh his prepubescence or should i say pubescence at this point because he did get laid i guess it's written well he got laid in the last episode i'm pretty sure oh yeah yeah um yeah the sex he, was he written coerced. very <coughs> he coerced his way the sex was a little tough to get through 
if I'm being honest. I've I've written sex scenes in young adult novels before, and I think I, I can, you know, I have a handle on that. Um, so, yeah, is, you think it's well written? No. Um, no, I thought that was very, okay. very cringy. Because yeah. it's, it's just evident to me that the woman he's having sex with does not want to have sex with him. And he's, yeah, I also think he's kind of manipulating her, you know, her state. He's manipulating her. Do you think she's under the influence of the spire? No. No. Hmm. It would be a dope twist, though. So we'll I guess I'm downplaying my expectations. My expectations are mainly just to get spooked from this point forward. It's obvious that it's not going to be a woman in black for everyone type of thing, but it very may well be a woman yeah. in black type of thing for the narrator for the last, like, three or four parts of the story. You know, like a bedtime thing. And and all my only hope, literally my only hope, is that it's better than bedtime. Because that's what I'm comparing this to right now the most. A guy telling a story about the past of when, when he was in high school or when he was little, you know, dealing with a spooky ghost in a spooky situation, and then it ends kind of lamely when he exercises the demons, quite literally. So it's just like, you know, if it's better than that, then I'll be happy. Yeah. To me, it's, you know, there are still things that are quality-wise better than this. You know, Pen Pal, Ben Drowned, Uncle Jerry's, you know, they're just, their stories formatted better and just kind of written better. And this was Whistler's. A- Whistlers is written really well. Of all time. Yeah, Spire in the Woods is um, a lot of people. A lot of people. Uh, it's on the back burner. You know, they're just like it exists. Uh, they like to mention it. You know, a lot of people who think that they've seen a lot of creepypastas tend to think that this is one of the better. I'd agree. To I'd agree to a point. You know, is this on par with Left Right Game? No. Is this on par with Baraska? Yeah. And a lot of people think Baraska is one of the worst, you know, scariest things I've ever read. I I disagree emphatically, but you know, <clears throat> Pen Pal. Now that's now that's scary. I'd put Pen Pal over this. I'd put Baraska on on par, essentially. Um, yeah, let, I I think we should get into it. So yeah, uh, this is gonna be if you're familiar with the story, this is gonna be part seven of Spire in the Woods from Reddit No Sleep. Most people have largely forgotten about all the hysteria surrounding the Y2K bug, and rightly so. Sorry, it was a fundamentally silly concern. I'm not saying it was... I'm sorry, do you want to say something? Yeah, do you, do you remember what Y2K was? Because um, this narrator likes to say, I remember things, and Y2K, I know things. Y2K, Y2K. It's when the clocks were going to set for 2000, but in those old, like, Y2K. clocks and computers... Okay. There was no stat for 2000, so they thought the banks and credit companies were going to explode because it would just go 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, instead of 2, 0, 0, 0, 0. Yeah. And everyone thought the stock market, everything would explode, basically. Anything anything digital was going to go to hell because of Y2K. Because analog time or analog trackers for old school CPUs and shit. Hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, I did not. I wasn't aware of that. I think I've heard of you it. Were, but... You were younger than me, and I've watched a lot of satirical things that make fun of events like Y2K. Like, shout out to Internet Historian on YouTube. His videos are fucking hilarious. <laughs> and um, he uh, he did a mockumentary video of... 
Y2K and all the people who invested in trying to protect themselves and, you know, basically sold their houses, tried to protect everything that they had, and then, you know, Y2K didn't happen and they were just like, oh, well, you know, I gambled wrongly on this one. I sold all my belongings and I traded it all for gold. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know, man. It's weird. But that happened. Oh, my God. I'm high. I'm really, I'm really stoned. I don't know the last time I read an episode well, this high. I'm on albuterol. That's Have beautiful. you ever had albuterol sulfate? I, I have. Let me tell you, this shit clears up your lungs, boy. <laughs> I can breathe. <laughs> um, yeah, so, so Y2K... I'm not saying it was outside the realm of possibility that a few systems would crash or that there wouldn't be a couple of automated billing issues, but an embarrassingly high percentage of the population believed, like my father, that it could cause a nuclear holocaust. We'd been fighting about it since Thanksgiving. That's not how missiles work, Dad. Oh, so you're a nuclear technician now. All the control systems that launch our ICBMs are computerized. And they're old computers. They're not compliant. You don't know what will happen. I know missiles don't launch unless they're told to. It's not like they're sitting around in their silos going, Can I launch yet? Can I launch yet? Huh? Huh? How about now? And the computers are sitting there going, No, no, no. Wait, what year is it? 1900? Crap. I, I haven't been invented yet. Release the dogs of war. I've been fighting with my parents for weeks to let me go to Drew DeLuca's New Year's Eve party, but in addition to the imminent threat of thermonuclear war, they thought 15 was too young to stay out all night at a co-ed party. Originally, they had wanted to pick me up by 10. After I brought Alina home, my dad suddenly reversed his position. I could stay over at Drew's. <laughs> In the past, I had always been at home when the ball dropped. Usually, my brother would fall <laughs> my asleep. My ball dropped. In the past, I'd been home in bed when my balls would drop. <laughs> no, the dad, the dad wants him to get his his dick wet, so he keeps trying to push, <clears throat> push him into situations to have sex with this little girl. Old man's looking at this fifteen-year-old girl, thinking He's, my boy. He probably has pictures of her on his desktop. I'm gonna take a hit of albuterol. <laughs> <laughs> Usually, my brother would fall asleep around eleven. My parents had long since outgrown the compulsion to make New Year's Eve special. This usually left me alone with Dick Clark and my daydreams of having someone to kiss at midnight. His dick is... He named his dick Dick Clark. Dick Clark. Yeah. He's trying to introduce Alina to Dick Clark. Alina... Richard Clark, if you will. Hello, Alina. Meet my dick, Dick Clark. Meet Dick Clark. And then, like, comes out of his pants and is like, Hey, kid, how's it going? I'm Dick. Oh my Dick Clark. This is like Big Mouth. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Is this Big Mouth? Yeah. Yeah. I'm just waiting for Woman in Black to show up and <laughs> kill that little horny kid. <laughs> Andrew Globberman. <laughs> oh yeah, Andrew. He just no Nick That's roll really dies instead. <laughs> oh yeah, I'm gonna come, Murray. I'm gonna come. Yeah, come for me, my sweet boy. That's a little. That's a little haunting for Murray. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. Uh, you're high, I'm on albuterol, this is great. <laughs> okay. Of course, back in the story, of course, that was all immaterial. There was no way Alina would turn up at DeLuca's, and after finding out what had happened to Carrie and having to tell my parents about it, well, I didn't exactly feel like celebrating either. My dad actually stayed up with me that year. 
He was convinced the power would go out at midnight. Part of me hoped he was right. Sure, it might have meant the end of the world, but at least it would have taken my mind off of how crappy I felt. At midnight, my testicles dropped. <laughs> so, <laughs> Great. At midnight, the ball dropped. <laughs> I liked it the first time. <laughs> well, the, the readers have to know. Sorry, listeners. You ain't reading. <laughs> You're reading. Somebody... <laughs> I'm also reading, but in my head. Readers. Right here. So many things had happened to me that year. So many things that I thought would make me feel happy or maybe just fulfilled. But the girl I loved was still miserable. Two thumbs down. <laughs> one of my best friends had brain damage, and there was nothing I could do for either one of them. Three thumbs down. <laughs> and the worst part, I couldn't tell which one I cared about more. <laughs> the world was the same miserable place it had been that morning. No more, no less. I tried calling Alina before I went to sleep, but hung up when her dad answered. The next day, we spoke only briefly. You tried to fuck my daughter. <laughs> Just a, well, he answers the phone to everyone that way. We don't it's know like his pastor. It's like, what's um, his name? Sorry, or <coughs> what's Alina's last name? No, no. The, uh, the narrator. We don't know his first name. I think we do. I don't know it. So I, I don't remember be, it. I That's the mistaken. difference. I don't right. remember it. Um, okay. So, next day we spoke on it briefly. She seemed more distant than ever, but assured me it was only because her parents were in the next room. At my parents' insistence, Mrs. Peterson joined us for a late dinner on her way back from the hospital. The dark wood surface of our dining room table was polished to a mirrored finish, and Mrs. Peterson looked out of place sitting at it. Her old t-shirt and stained khaki work pants reflected back up at her. My little brother was visibly uncomfortable to be sitting across from her. He had the same expression on his face as he had the first time we'd gone to a Sox game by ourselves, and heading back to Alewife, a homeless person had sat near us on the tee. None of us spoke much, but before leaving, Mrs. Peterson did accept the name of a speech therapist my dad had tracked down from one of the partners at his firm earlier that day, and had agreed to let us help pay for it. I knew he had ulterior motives, but I got the impression from the look in my dad's eyes that he really did want to help. That's fair. My dad's a bit of a shark, and I, I think that may have been the first time I'd ever seen him look at someone with pity. Monday morning, I saw Fletch for the first time since Carrie had fallen through the ice. It had only been a week, but it felt like a lifetime. Okay, so he didn't go back to the island yet, but he is thinking about going back by himself. He made that very clear to Alina last time. Yeah. He he said, like, That's why I was, oh, I well, was confused Carrie, Carrie stopped me. Carrie stopped me. What happened to Carrie has stopped me from going back, but I'd be lying if I said, um, you know, I'm not going to go yeah. back for you. For Lena. Yeah. Yeah. So Monday morning I saw Fletch. It's the first time we've seen Fletch since this it's been happened. A week. And it felt like a lifetime. It might still offer the opportunity for him to tag along. Mm-hmm. Which is why I'm pointing it out. Fletch looked tired in a way you don't see often in teenagers. Looked like my grandfather right before he decided he couldn't take any more chemo. He looked beaten. If he didn't know already, I didn't think he could handle an update on Carrie's condition. We rode in silence. School was a torture. Everyone was laughing and smiling. 
they'd complained uh, they complained of being back from break but were eagerly catching up with friends swapping stories about new years and christmas and commiserating about the lack of fresh powder anywhere on the east coast that year they had no idea scary Carrie was lying in a hospital bed practically unable to speak at least when rob had killed himself his death had been so public we all went through it together with Carrie, aside from Kim Murray and Dan Bergen, Fletch and I were the only ones who even seemed to notice she was missing. It's lonely being miserable in a crowd of people, um, in a crowd of happy people. Can you read the full line one more time? <clears throat> Did I not do good enough for you? I'm sorry. I just feel like when I go back and edit it, it's going to be hard to carry over the same tone of the <clears throat> beginning of the sentence versus the latter. Well, I'm just, we're, I hope you keep this whole thing. I might. And we. I might now. I've been yeah. doing that lately. That's I think it's. That's I think it's funny when I. That's meta. When I ask people to do things that's and then meta. they're just like, <coughs> "Fuck <clears throat> you!" Like, why? My throat. This albuterol is hurting me. I'm just. My. I got. I got cotton mouth. <clears throat> I'm drinking soda, so I'm not doing anything. The to line. Help myself. The line in full. It's lonely being miserable in a crowd of happy people. Now I'm absolutely keeping everything up to this point. Very good. Drew teased me about having missed his party, but quickly realized I wasn't in the mood. You're right, dude. Not even close. Y you want to talk about it? Shaking my head was all I could do without crying. Drew squeezed my ass. Yeah. <laughs> what? what is this? Oh my god. Drew squeezed my shoulders in a half hug, and then gave me some space by turning back to our group of friends. I disappeared wordlessly into the crowded hallway in search of the only person that could make me feel better. I found Alina right before the bell rang for first period. She was sitting against the lockers with Sarah Cohen. I thought Alina still didn't want to be seen in public <clears throat> with him. He doesn't care. That's right. I couldn't hear what they were saying. Dick power. But based on how quickly they sat talking, <laughs> I got the impression it had been about me. Yeah, his dick is even like, it's like two inches. All I wanted to do was put my arms around Alina, to melt against her and bury my face in her shoulder. To lose myself, even if just for a second, in the sensation of holding her. But the bell rang before I could even get a word out, and Sarah dragged her to class with scarcely a backwards glance. Oh shit. <coughs> That's not like a good sign, you know? Like when I would have. Ugh when I was sexually active in high school and, you know, the next day my my ex would give me a look like that, oh, I knew there would be no sex for a little while because she's mad about something. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, Alina, honey, look. She doesn't want to be with this guy. Like, we can confirm that, right? Oh, yeah. Okay. He's getting weird. But are there ulterior motives? Do you think she's, um... You think she knows something? You think she's aware of something? Maybe she's... She's obviously the... not the ghost. We, we, we can't... Well, we can't make that assumption. Well... It's too, <laughs> it's too much. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. Um... Alright, the rest of the day crawled by in a meaningless cacophony of lecturing teachers and jabbering students. With each passing minute, I felt like it was harder and harder to breathe. Harder. I spent the last period staring at the second hand of the clock, willing it to move faster until it struck three. That's when I heard them. The bells. One. I was in my den. I was inside Alina. Two. Writhing against her. 
felt as though I'd melt and explode all at the same time. Three. I never wanted the chimes to end. They did. The bells feel like sex, man. But they did. I was sitting in my desk, breathing hard. Everyone else around me was packing up their things. I took a moment to collect myself and followed suit. They sounded as loud as they had from the shore of the Quabbin. As, as loud Quabbin. and as beautiful. The Quabbin. Quabbin. Quabbin? Quabbin? No, stop. The qu- cabin? The cave. Because it's, it's a Q-U that's pronounced with a hard K? Cabin. Cabin? That Wednesday, Fletch and I were in a car accident. Oh, oh fuck! For God's sake! Jesus, you getting guys. from three o'clock his orgasming to bells to we're in a car accident. It was probably hard during the car accident too. One. Oh fuck! Fletch is driving two. There's <laughs> I'm a car. Hard. There's a three. Car oh fuck! Coming. Car accident. Three. Fender bender. Oh. <laughs> three. Insurance claim. <laughs> Four. Fletch's dad is going to kill me. (laughs) It was on the way to school. We were running a little late for some reason, although I don't recall why. Fletch had slowed down the car to make the turn onto Cold Spring Road and then froze, letting the car drift into the trees on the side of the road. Oh shit, is he being spooked? For my part, I was yelling. But he didn't seem to notice for a full eight seconds. He must have heard the bells. He just sat there, his, his foot lightly pressing the gas... His car pressed up against a grove of small pine trees, its wheels spinning up dirt and fallen needles. I didn't need to ask what happened. It was 8 o'clock. He'd heard the bells. When he snapped out of it, Fletch was visibly shaken. Oh, God, I'm I'm sorry. (coughs) I'm sorry, are you all right? (coughs) I was fine. The only real damage was a crack in the front bumper and a bent sapling. We'd been lucky. If we'd been a few seconds earlier or later... It would have struck eight while Fletch was going 30 or 40 down our winding streets, and the trees would have been a lot less forgiving. Have you heard them since we were out there? He asked. Yeah, twice. Carrie's heard them too. I've heard them eight times. They keep getting louder. Fletch shuddered. Do you think this is what happened to Rob? The bells just kept ringing, getting louder and louder until he couldn't take it anymore? I didn't. The bells were too beautiful, or so I thought at the time. I was actually a little jealous Fletch had heard them more times than I had. We arrived after first period had already started, too late for me to have any chance of seeing Alina that day. I hadn't seen her all week, and every time I called her house, it seemed like her father answered and I just missed her. You're trying to fuck my daughter. Awfully social for someone who still ate all her lunches with the guidance counselors. Although, in fairness to Alina, I got it. I found the general din of the classroom intolerable and the cafeteria even worse. Everyone else seemed so happy, so carefree. I'm not sure when exactly I began checking the time compulsively. May have been that day. Fletch went off the road. May have been later in the week. Regardless... The time seemed to be the only thing I could focus on in school. Suddenly, I was holding my breath whenever a new hour approached, each time hoping that I would hear the bells again. I remember thinking that it was funny. Back before I knew for sure there was something lying beyond the realm of our senses, I'd always turned to prayer. Seriously? And now, after years of seeking out the supernatural as a way of bolstering my faith, after having found the evidence that I was searching for, 
I found myself unable to com complete so much as a simple Hail Mary without my thoughts straying to the sublime beauty of the bells. I think this guy's losing it. Maybe. Yeah, that would be an interesting turn, like this narration. I'd be okay with that. The narration is <laughs> a little bit of him being indoctrinated with this whole bell shit. It kills people like Rob. It doesn't, doesn't always have that effect on everyone else. Yeah. So we're going to see him die in real time in the narration, or... Fuck if I know, man. Yeah. I don't even know. Like, it's confusing. He's telling the story from the future. You gotta remember that. It, yeah, it's that's one of those bullshit. things. It's one of those things where it's like unreliable narrator. I don't know. Yeah. I don't. Yeah. Know. I don't know if this is a plot holes thing. It, it feels more like a Baraska thing where it's like, oh, I, now I'm old and I'm just, telling the story of what happened. To me. Oh no, that's more of a pen pal thing, not a Baraska thing. Not sorry. Not that the point of view is bad. It's just. Um, I understand. Yeah. <sighs> Ah, okay. I guess it was foolish of me to think that finding the widower's clock would reaffirm my Catholic faith. I still didn't know if it was if there was a God. All I knew for sure was there were there were the bells, and the bells were housed in a spire in the woods on an island in a reservoir, just a car ride away. And I'd be getting my driver's license in a little over a week. Right. I tried to dispel thoughts of returning to the cabin, but Grabbing. the, the unhappier I was at school. The more I longed to return. Yeah, it's like my ex-girlfriend. There was no question. Alina was avoiding me. I kept trying to call that bitch. I kept getting her fucking parents. You trying to fuck my daughter? I didn't want them to think I was a pest, so I tried to keep my calls down to one a day, that goddamn little... But it was Jeez. so hard. <laughs> it was so hard. I took to calling and hanging up. If she didn't answer. Pathetic, I know. Oh, but I couldn't help myself. We were taught in Sunday school that hell's worst torture is how exquisitely your soul feels the absence of God. Ooh. If that's true, surely a teenager's worst torture is how exquisitely they feel the absence of their first love. Especially when it's a rejection. Yeah, man, that makes you want to fucking die. The dirty looks started on Tuesday the 11th, just <laughs> over a week after we'd come back from break. He's a sociopath. I'd gone looking for Alina <laughs> in the junior's hallway, same as I had every morning. And there was Sarah Cohen. That bitch. Looking at me like I was filth incarnate. It stopped me dead in my tracks. Oh, shit. You know what? When, when, uh... When I took my ex's virginity, uh, a, and a lot of people knew that we were sexually active, a lot of her close friends thought I was just a fucking pig. Mm -hmm. <laughs> How great is that? Yeah. I've been in a similar situation. Yeah, man. Actually, twice. Virginity is fickle that way. Yeah. Um, really, truly, though, the perception of others is unimportant. <laughs> Reality is your perception. <coughs> now, you have to abide by these objective moral standards um, because you know that there are direct consequences to your existence um, but what I'm saying is you're the only thing that is real and you cannot verify anyone else's yeah man so anyway how are you? I'm doing good good <laughs> I was gonna say that objectively no one's opinion matters true that yeah. son <laughs> I agree <laughs> but it doesn't matter you can't verify if I exist. God. This conversation is more interesting <coughs> than this fucking story. Yeah. 
that's a creepy pasta man. What are you looking for out of life? <laughs> <laughs> I'm spoiled. I'm spoiled. You are spoiled. I think after left right game, there's just no there's God, that was there's so no good. life. Oh my god. No life after left right game. I I didn't know Sarah well, but she'd always seemed so friendly. Seeing that disgust directed at me, it was shocking. I wasn't real popular, but I had never elicited that sort of reaction. Mostly at school, away from my handful of friends, I was invisible. Next day at lunch, I noticed it wasn't just Sarah. When I went up to get my food, I noticed that the whole table of sporty girls that Alina used to sit with before Rob's suicide were staring at me. It was the sort of reaction I'd seen people have to Scary Carrie, like they simply didn't want me to be there. While I didn't know any of these girls especially well, I had met one or two of them through Christy and thought we were on good terms. I tried giving them a smile, tilting my head back in that hey gesture. Some turned away quickly. A few others uh, pursed their lips in an expression I couldn't read. After that, I noticed they kept looking over at me throughout the rest of the lunch period. Picked up my tray for a while, then left without eating. I missed feeling invisible. I tried calling Alina again that night. I knew I wouldn't like hearing whatever it was she had to say, but I had to hear it. Her answering machine picked up. Thought about leaving a message, but yeah, didn't see the point. How could she treat me like this? Oh, fuck. All I ever wanted to do was help her, make her feel good. I felt like someone had scooped out my insides and left me a languid husk. I couldn't imagine a worse feeling. I couldn't sleep. I stared up at the ceiling and tried to convince myself that she really didn't, did care about me. That her happiness that we were together and, and, and had made love had brought her survivor guilt rushing back. Christ, I was practically praying the girl I loved was suffering from psychological problems. She is. I don't remember if it was three or, f or four when I, when I heard them. Those fucking bells. They sounded so sweet, so clear. I felt like I had, after, I felt like I had after the first time I kissed Alina. Oh, I saw the version of us from daydreams, walking the halls, holding hands, smiling and laughing as we argued about whose friends to sit with that day. I felt full again. The next thing I knew, I was waking up. Thursday the 13th was a snow day. As desperately as I wanted to see Alina again, even just to bump into her, it was a relief not to be in school. I stayed in bed until nearly noon, and then had breakfast with my brother. He was so calm, so peaceful, nothing to do but play video games and watch the snow fall. Maybe I'm romanticizing it now, but January 13th, 2000 was the last normal day of my life. What? How are you telling the story then, bro? We're about to tell, we're about to hit, hit something. Maybe. Friday was my birthday. 16 years old, it should have been one of the happiest days of my life. Why? But all I really felt was resolve. I decided I had to know what was going on. Absolutely. Enough was enough. If I couldn't catch Alina at school or get her on the phone, then I'd have to make Alina's house my first stop as a licensed, a licensed driver. Fletch and I got to school early. Ever since the bells made him drift off the road, he insisted we leave early enough to be sure we were parked before 8 o'clock. I skipped my locker and went straight for the junior's hallway. Halfway there, Drew DeLuca interrupted me, pulling me into an empty classroom. Drew was co-captain of our swim team, and the years spent swimming laps had left him almost absolutely ripped. He moved, me, he moved me about as easily as he would have a small child, and when the door shut behind us, he didn't loosen his grip. 
Dude, what's going on with you and Alina? There was something very accusatory in his voice. I tried to step back, but he yanked me forward, maintaining his uncomfortably close distance. That's what I want. Oh, shit. That's what I want to know, I mumbled. Drew stared unblinkingly into my eyes, like he, had, he was trying to see right through me as I told him about how Alina had come to me at his birthday party asking me about a reference in Rob's suicide note. About how we'd kiss at her, kissed at her house, about how Carrie had fallen through the ice, and about how Alina and I eventually made love. I left out the part about the bells. Jesus Christ. Jesus fucking Christ. Drew dropped his hand from my arm and turned to walk away. The angry edge was gone from his voice, but he didn't sound relieved. Dude... Sarah Cohen told the whole swim team this morning that you... <coughs> uh, that you're, like, stalking Alina. Saying you're, like, Rob Kennan. Well, actually, she implied you were a hell of a lot worse. I sat down hard. I felt like the room was spinning, like the wind had been knocked out of me. You've got to back off, dude. He continued. She's got a boyfriend. She has a... Who? The guy she dated last summer. What's his name? From Bishop Girton? What's his name was Ryan Dorsett. They'd met at a track meet two years earlier. Ryan Dorsett was rich. Ryan Dorsett was tall. Ryan Dorsett was handsome. And, although I may not be the most objective source on this, Ryan Dorsett was a douchebag. The first time I'd ever spoken to him, I was wearing a Radiohead shirt, and he quizzed me about their album titles as if I was some bandwagon follower who had to justify my fandom to him. How could Alina do this to me? Take my virginity, and then backslide with an old boyfriend? How could she be that shallow? Ryan Dorsett. Happy birthday to me. I actually, I feel for this guy now. Hi. That shit has happened to me more times than I'd like to think. You know what? At risk of sounding like an incel? Me too. Cheers. Um, I mean, those circumstances have happened. No, so, I uh, don't think it, I, don't, I understand your joke. I just don't think it sounds yeah. anything like an incel. I think, honestly. No, I'm, I was... I was kidding. His <laughs> behavior is weird. No, his behavior is absolutely weird, but I think the confusion is justified. Sure. But <coughs> we'll see. We'll see what the actual facts are. She you know? does. Just so it's clear, this girl should be in therapy, on medication, and clearly not having any romantic relations with anyone. The fact that she has had sex with this guy. Unless that's not her. That would be a cool twist. We will see. You know. I'm going to reserve my judgment for the actions of these individuals who are not even real. Um, sure. But we'll see. We'll see. Um, yeah, though, I guess it makes sense. His actions are a little more... Well, his confusion is justified. Yeah. Um, Which means his actions are a little it's bit really, more justified. It's really her behavior that has changed. Well, we're now switching him. the role of victim. You know, yeah, Rob Rob was place. manipulated. Um, you know, Alina was manipulated. And now the narrator was manipulated. So we kind of have this weird it's chain thing It's all due to happening. the Widower's Clock. 
Yeah. We'll see. I would have liked to have stayed hidden in the empty classroom, but the bell rang. Emerging into the crowded hallway, I could feel people staring at me. Whispered conversations halted at my approach. John Landry, who was on the track team with Alina, shouldered me as I came out of the stairwell near the gym's locker rooms. It's weird how quickly gossip can change your whole world. I wouldn't exactly call John Landry a friend of mine, but we had sat next to each other in bio the year before and had also or had always gotten along very well. Robert Kennan had learned, through no fault of his own, what a rumor could do to your life. And so had Lena, which made her doing it to me somehow extra painful. She knew how much the whispers and sidelong glances could hurt, and she was subject subjecting me to it anyway. Of course, in fairness to her, what she said about me wasn't a lie. Not exactly. If only she had talked to me, I wouldn't have had to go to her house that day. My mom picked me up from school a little early and took me to the DMV. I passed the written exam and the driving test with flying colors. She offered to let me drive home, but I declined. It would turn four while we were still on the road, and I didn't want to risk anything, any accident. If my mom thought it was weird, she didn't say anything. After we got home, I lied and said I wanted my first car ride to be a visit to Scary Carrie, who had been released from the hospital the week before. My parents thought that was sweet, even complimented me on what a good person I was. <laughs> I thanked them and forced a smile, even though I felt dead inside. I headed out for Lena's around a quarter to five. Her parents wouldn't be home for another hour or two. I swear to God, all I wanted was to talk to her. I never meant for anything else to happen. Please believe me when I say that, please. When I arrived, there was a car parked behind Alina's blue beetle that I didn't recognize. Went up to the door, but something stopped me from ringing the bell. It was a queasy feeling. The sort of feeling you get when you know your life's never going to be the, the way you want it to. I took a closer look at the car. It had a Bishop Gorton parking pass. The son of a bitch was there. I walked through the yard around to the back of the house. Part of me wanted to catch them red-handed, though it's not clear to me there was anything to catch. If they were together, I couldn't exactly call it cheating because if Alina wouldn't even talk to me, clearly we weren't going out. I guess I just had to see it with my own eyes. Ugh, I never man, walk, walk away, save yourself. I crouched down beside one of the basement windows and peered in. Ah, fuck. There she was, on the couch where we had, had, had our first kiss, lying on top of Ryan Dorset. His hands were, sorry, his hands were inside her shirt and hers were working aggressively to undo his belt. I wanted to leave. I wanted to run away, to scrunch my eyes closed and pretend that I had never seen anything. But I couldn't. I was held in place by a morbid fascination. It was almost like in a dream when you're not in control and just watching yourself from the outside. This is one giant fucking metaphor of, of the, the beginning story of the clock, clock tower. Clock it absolutely is. That's clever, I guess. It's okay. Um, it's still a little, a little heavy-handed. My mind was screaming to go, but my feet stayed planted and my eyes drank in every detail. To this day, I remember what I saw from that window even better than I remember our first kiss. Or the way Alina always smelled like vanilla. Or how it felt when I gave her my virginity. What I saw was Alina unfastening Dorset's pants and sliding her hands uh, into his fly. 
It was tough to see her face, but I could tell she wasn't crying. I could tell she didn't feel conflicted about what she was doing. I realized, some months later, that I'd never seen her look that way at me. I'd always been the aggressor. I guess I hadn't noticed because at 16 years old I had internalized the idea that that was what guys were supposed to do. And that good girls were supposed to be, well, not reluctant exactly. I wasn't so far gone as to think girls didn't also want sex, but I, I believed they'd be more demure, less eager. Right, consent and all that. But at the same time, standing there outside her basement window, I wasn't thinking of Alina's perspective. I didn't consider how she felt about Ryan Dorset, or uh, what she must have thought of me. I could only stare as they wriggled out of her or out of their clothes and watch as Alina guided Dorset inside her. I felt like Adolf Riefler, the clockmaker. <laughs> That's when it turned five, and I lost myself completely to the bells. One. I felt warm, but not like before. This was different. It wasn't like a blanket, it was like a fire. Two, my heart pounded in my chest like a thunderstorm. Three, I was acutely aware of my body, my arms and legs pumping like pistons, the wind blowing past my face. Four, I could feel the weight of something solid in my hand. Five, once, when I was eleven, I had gotten into a fight at school, and it took two teachers to pry me off <laughs> the other boy. I had given him a black eye and knocked out the last of his baby teeth. Anger can also feel good. Bloodlust can also feel like home. When the last of the bells tolled, they were replaced by the sound of a car alarm. Alina, only half-dressed, was screaming and crying and sobbing all at the same time. I looked up just in time to see Ryan Dorset wearing nothing but boxers and a pair of sneakers. Punch me in the face. I fell down hard into the pavement of Lena's driveway, which was covered in broken glass. Apparently, I'd been smashing in his car windows with a large rock. Fuck. Dorset grabbed me by my jacket, pulled me up into a seated position so he could get a good grip at my throat. Stop it! Stop it! Alina shrieked. I'm sure somewhere one of her neighbors were already calling the cops. What the fuck's the matter with you, huh? Why can't you leave her alone? Dorset asked. He maneuvered his body weight on top of me, pinning me down as his fingers dug into my neck. It's an awful feeling having someone you don't want to be there on top of you pressing down. Oh, you know, that's funny. I wonder how Alina felt, asshole. Right? Good one, right, Cap? <laughs> <laughs> Fuck. The rock was still in my hand, and I swung it with everything oh, I was worth. Shit. It hit the side of his face with a sickening crunch. Bingo! Break this boy's skull, bro. <laughs> no. I'd broken Ryan Dorset's jaw and sent him rolling into the... Aminev's. snow-covered front lawn. That's their last name. He must have been in shock because it took him a second to realize how hard he'd been hit and for the pain to set in. I could see the realization, the fear in his face. Made me feel good. Made me feel big. Hell yeah, bro. I'm, I'm all about endorsing violence. Should've just finished him off right there in front of Aminev's. It looks like he's gonna, man. <clears throat> Dorset slowly began to crawl away on his hands and knees. 
I got to my feet and held up the rock high above my head. Please, please. Alina whispered. All the color had drained from her face. Every bit of her was trembling. Tears rolled unchecked down each of her cheeks. She was looking at me like, like a bitch. She was looking at me and what she saw scared her. I'm, I'm so sorry. I looked back at her. Her eyes were red from crying. Her lip quivered. She looked a lot older than 17. <laughs> Suddenly the rock felt heavy. I didn't feel so big. I let the rock fall from my hand, landed in the snow with a soft plop. Ryan began to blubber in pain. His words were unintelligible. Or maybe I just don't want to remember what he said. Blood was gushing from his mouth. It stained the snow beneath him as he crawled. Fuck. I had not intended for things to turn out the way they did. Alina was terrified of me, and that was the last thing I ever wanted her to feel. Especially about me. I opened my mouth and found no words. I reached out towards her, desperate to comfort her, and she recoiled from my grasp. Her eyes squeezed shut, bracing for an impact I could hardly blame her for feeling. I didn't know what else to do, so I just left. It was the last time I ever saw Alina Amanev. Found myself on the highway with the music blaring. I was driving fast down 495. It had to have been at least half an hour since I'd left Alina's. I had no memory of the in, uh, intervening time. I couldn't go home. I couldn't. I'd be arrested. This wasn't like a shoving match. Ryan Dorsett would need medical attention. He was a second person in less than a month that I'd put in the hospital. Then again, where do I go? What was I going to do? Make a run for Canada? Even if police wouldn't soon be looking for my mom's car. I probably had seven or eight dollars on me and access to another 250 or so in my Bay Bank savings account. Hardly enough to get too far. I felt dead inside. There was only one thing that could make me feel better. I wanted to hear them again. One last time for real. I was going to the Quabbin. Quabbin. The sun sets early in winter. Hell, it had already started going down even before I had arrived at Lena's. By the time I, I hit the quab and it was a little after... Am I saying it wrong? No, I just like saying it. Oh, quabbin. Quabbin. It was a little after 8.30 and dark. I parked the car near the trailer park as Fletch had done the night Carrie fell through the ice. I remember wondering how close I was to where he'd parked the night Rob found the spire. The walk to the lake took a little longer than last time. There were about four or five inches of snow on the ground, and the plows had turned the sides of the road into little snowbanks a foot or so high. It made walking on the side of the road a slow going. Luckily, I only saw one car drive by, and they didn't pay any attention to me. It was bitter cold. I hadn't noticed at first, but with each step, the wind was cutting further and further through that dead feeling. I just kept walking. It was like being back on the hike with Scary Carrie. You're hyper aware of your body and all of the aches and pains, but if you just keep walking, your brain goes blank. It felt good not to think. I was only about halfway between the entrance to the quabbin and the reservoir when I heard them. So sweet, so lovely, so warm. Suddenly, it wasn't so cold anymore. I didn't feel the wind, or at least not a winter wind. 
I felt a warm breeze on my cheek. It smelled dewy and sweet. The full moon shone down on the lush green forest, surrounding either side of the dirt road. Hadn't it been paved only a moment ago? I could hear crickets. A tiny light flitted past the corner of my eye. Then another. And another. Fireflies dancing through the air. It was so warm. I took off my jacket and stood watching the fireflies try to find one another in the hopes of mating. And then the bells finished their call. And I was standing in the snow, holding my jacket and staring at nothing. I quickly struggled back into my jacket. I looked back the way I came. The moonlight bouncing off the snow bathed everything in a weak blue light. It was beautiful, but sterile. A much harsher environment than the one in the vision I just had. I had returned to hear the bells one last time, but looking back in the direction of the trailer park, well, there was nothing for me back there. Nothing good, at any rate. So I turned towards the reservoir and started walking. One foot in front of the other. Just me and that, and that one last mile. When I finally reached the shore, it was nearly 9.30. The wind had blown the snow into little drifts, leaving some patches of ice bare. In the moonlight, it looked almost like the cabin was made of white and blue marble. It was scenic, but I barely noticed. I was looking off at the larger of the two islands, its trees frosted by snow, left it almost invisible against the horizon. I wondered dimly if the bag with Christie's raft and my mother's Bible was laying somewhere out on that ice. It had been cold the last couple of weeks and the ice was silent. Either it had grown thicker or the snow was dampening the sound of its I stepped out onto the cabin's frozen surface. It was the easiest walk. Sorry, it was easiest to walk where the snow was thickest. With each step, I drew closer to the place where Carrie had fallen through the ice, sinking deeper into myself, my self-loathing as I did. I almost noticed, I almost wanted the ice to give out beneath me. The thought of plunging into the dark depths of the freezing waters below, of having what little warmth I possessed, sucked from my body, leaving me numb physically unable to feel anything was enticing. I didn't want to feel, I didn't want to think, and I didn't want to feel. Not like this. I'd barely caught a glimpse of Carrie's face as she fell through the ice, standing there trying to picture it. All I could see was Alina and the horror I'd filled her with. I considered for a long moment stomping my feet in an effort to open up a fissure in the surface of the reservoir. But there was something else I wanted more than the Anesthetizing. Wow, I've never said That's that good. word. Anesthetizing. Uh-huh. Anesthet- I, I can't say it a second time. Anesthetizing. Yeah. Uh, relief the cold offered. I wanted the bells. Being close to their source strengthened the memory of how they made me feel when I hurt them. Being close to their source strengthened the memory of how they made me feel when I hurt them. It was as if I was being pulled towards them by an invisible string. 
Actually, it was more like I was underwater, holding my breath, being sucked along by a gentle current. It felt like uh, if I ever wanted to breathe again, I had to go where the waters wanted to take me. I had to find the spire. Wind pushes snow around capriciously. If the snow can catch somewhere, more snow will pile up on top of it, forming little drifts like sand dunes in the desert. If there's enough wind, eight inches of snow might result in some spots where the ground is barely covered, and others where the snow runs two, three feet deep. I didn't see anything that extreme that night on the frozen surface of the cabin, except for one oddly blocky little snowdrift. As I drew nearer, I could see in the moonlight a cloth strap peeking out of the snow. It was my duffel bag, the one I dropped after pulling Carrie out of the water. The bag had been soaked and left outside for weeks. It felt like a solid block of ice and probably weighed close to 30 pounds. I doubted there was much in there that could be salvaged. Maybe the raft. But my mom's Bible was almost certainly done for and the incense and various things Carrie and I had accumulated were probably ruined. But I took it anyway. Leaving it there so close to the source of the bells seemed as disrespectful to me as leaving trash behind in the pews at church. The ice in its frozen straps cracked as I slung the bag over my shoulder and pressed on. It must have been 9.58 or 9.59 by the time I stepped off the ice and onto the shore of the large island, because I'd scarcely reached the wood line when the bells tolled ten. I found the ankle-deep snow replaced by a broad dirt road and the snow-capped trees with colonial homes, but these colonials weren't like the, Mc the McMansions that dominated my neighborhood. No, even in the near darkness, I could see that these were much more solidly built, and each looked different enough from the others that they couldn't possibly have all been made from the same plan. The bells rang out like thunder. I fell, shaking to my knees, letting their raw power wash over me. I could feel the sound waves reverberating through my bones. I was vibrating to the frequency of the universe. It felt like staring into the true face of God. My whole body tingled. My whole being crackled with energy. I wept because it was so beautiful. I wept because I was unworthy. I wept because I could do nothing else. The call of the bells washed over me like a wave at the beach and sucked me into their undertow. I thought I was leaving this world. I thought my next breath would be at their source. I felt like a weary traveler finally able to rest and a dreamer waking from sleep all at once. Then. The tenth bell sounded and I was lying in the snow. It was silent except for the wind, and I wept for a different reason. I was alone in the darkness, alone in the cold, in a world where I'd lost my place. There was no way but forward. There was nothing for me but the bells. I like it. I mean, we are in a truly desperate spot in the story. And for me, that is exactly where I wanted the story to go. I mean, I wouldn't agree with the methods that it got here. I thought I thought we would have been driven to the bell for other reasons, more compelling character reasons, whereas the bell kind of drove him mad. 
you know, it conveyed him a purpose in Alina that was not sentimental. He read it as sentimental because he's awkward, but... And he was in that phase where he thought a girl talking to him meant that she was sexually interested in him, and then he kind of manipulated her into having sex with him in order to, like, give her information that she wanted. And, you know, it's very awkward, and it's interesting, and I'm just... I like where we're at now because now it does not feel like any other pubescent, you know, horror story yes. on the internet. Now it feels in it's in its original place and I've never read anything like where this is going right now. Yeah. Because in Pen Pal, in Baraska, the main characters rarely do anything wrong. Inherently. Inherently. In Pen Pal it's completely accidental. In Baraska it's almost orchestrated behind the scenes and against the people's will. So this is something where the effects of the narrator's hubris in a situation has led him to, like, almost the end of a line. Like, this is like an an outsider's level coming-of-age fuck-up. You know, like, Johnny accidentally kills a kid in The Outsider's and it gets all of his brothers gunned down tr- when they try defending him, and it causes him and Pony Boy to go on the lamb, where Johnny dies in a fucking fire, I believe. So it's just like, we are in a desperate fucking spot, like a tight spot. And now I'm wondering, well, damn, like, we still have three chapters left. Where is this going to go? What are the spire? What is the spire going to do for him? And do for the narrative. Do we have three left? Oh, yeah, we do. It's three chapters left, yeah. This this next chapter is going to be eight, but we still have nine and ten to read. Yeah. Next time. So, you know, what, what are your thoughts on what you just read? I agree with what you said. I, um... I can appreciate the word, that we're there, in a way. Fine, yeah. I mean, maybe there's more... That we don't know. Maybe there's gonna. Maybe it's not gonna be what we expect. You know, we expected this spooky haunting thing, but he's actually going to it out of a place of desperation. It's like a Dante's Inferno thing. Like he's descending into the bowels of hell because he thinks he has nothing left on the other side. You know, this could this could go a billion different ways. Honestly. Yeah. I. Uh, yeah. What would redeem him at this point, you know? Redemption, huh? Um, yeah, like, I mean, he shows, he's right. He shows back up at his house, his parents bitch him out, you know, he, he's, he's, the school continues to treat him like an outsider. What, he robbed Ken and kills himself? I don't know, that wouldn't be as interesting as a story. I guess it could he's be... He's at the spire now, so something has to happen. I guess it'd be convenient if... Because the bells are supernatural, we agree on that, right? They have a yeah. supernatural effect. So yes. something supernatural is going to happen in this part. We just have to accept well, there, that. Well, there is definitely something supernatural just by the testimony of witnesses to Rob Kennan's death, and that, that being there was somebody else in the car with him. Which I've always held on to as a woman in black kind of shadowy revenge situation. But, it's, I mean, it, it could appear to everyone else differently. It obviously know? isn't Alina. I don't think so. Yeah, Alina, the character. I think uh, is just Alina, some girl. Alina has been a catalyst for the narrator's downfall in sanity. 
him him getting cucked by Alina was her purpose in the story. She's a <laughs> catalyst for his movement. Yeah. It's interesting. I'm I don't I don't like it. I want to say that like I I'm not a fan of what he's doing and how he's driving the story. I would have put them in a different situation where it drives sure. him to the spire, a more compelling and less desperate situation, but I can't say that it's not incredibly interesting to see where it's going to go from here. Yeah. I I I guess there what what story is it? I'm trying I'm thinking of something right now where it's like is it Veraska where it's just like this is a coming of age story where there is no winner. It's a lose lose. The entire situation is a lose lose. But it wasn't under super compelling circumstances. It was under the circumstances of well, that's just the way the world is, and people have to lose, and, you know, it sucks to suck. And that's kind of the story. Whereas this feels like it could be, like, you know, sometimes you lose, but there are elements at play here that could change your fate, could change the reality of the situation, you know? What if Alina's the one who ends up getting haunted and dying because of... Because of, you know... <coughs> him the narrator going nuts you know we don't we don't know you we think you think he brings Fletch back there it's hard it's hard to see where it's gonna head with Fletch cause he he seems terrified of the bells right like haunted by them yeah he's definitely angry at them he's, he's like oh the fucking bells um the narrator like comes and it and it scares Scary Carrie. She's like the bells, the bells, the bells. Um, and I don't believe Alina's heard them. So that's that's all we have right now. Um, is there anything else you want to no. bring to the table? I'm pretty eager to jump into it. This next part is a little bit shorter, so I'll try to get through it pretty quick. I had no thoughts of Rob. Out there on that island, I never considered for a moment that the bells had played a role, a large role, a huge, monstrous role in his suicide. He heard them. He'd found them. In the end, he'd put a homemade shotgun in his mouth and pulled the trigger. I'd like to think that if I had, I might not have pressed on, but when I'm being honest with myself, I know I would have. What's death compared to knowing? What was so great about my life that it had been better than hearing the bells at their source. When I stood up, I realized I wasn't at the shore of the island. I couldn't even see the shore. I looked around, trying to figure out how I'd gotten so deep in the woods, and noticed there weren't any footsteps behind me. But there was a deep track. It looked like when I fell to my knees, my body had been dragged through the snow. What? I should have stopped, but I didn't stop. I pressed on. The colonial houses, the broad dirt road I'd seen when the bells rang, I felt like I could still perceive where they'd been. Some of the trees, the ones nearest to me, were wrong. They were too young, they didn't belong there. The road was real, even if I couldn't see it. The houses loomed on all sides, even if I couldn't see them. Even if decades earlier, they'd all been moved or destroyed. It was like the present had been superimposed on the past. Everything I saw felt less substantial than what I knew had been there before. 
I'd seen the island's true face. I was on a road, and the road would lead me to the spire. The spire housed the bells, and no new growth forest could hide that from me. It was slow going, my feet were numb. Each time I tripped in the dark, I had to pull my hands from my warm pockets to catch myself before I hit the frozen ground. Some snow had made it into my shoes and was melting. But like the hike where I befriended Carrie, I kept going. Even if I'd wanted to complain, who would I complain to? <laughs> I trudged my way deeper and deeper into the woods. I might have been the first person to walk there since Rob had made his way to the spire back in late August. It's a weird feeling to be that alone. It's not privacy, it's isolation. When I stumbled into the clearing, I almost didn't see it. The spire. Everything else around me was frosted in snow, but not the spire. It was pristine. It stood twice my height, its whitewashed facade nearly invisible against the snow. The spire had a clean design, four large, flat faces tapering up to a sharp point, the sort of wooden spire you'd expect to see topped with a cross on a Protestant church. I don't think I'd have seen it at all if I weren't surrounded by half-circle of withered, long-dead trees that looked as though they'd been rotting for ages. All my hair stood on end. This was the source. The spire in the woods housed the bells. I approached it with reverence, like I used to approach the tabernacle after receiving communion. There was an energy in the air, an electricity. I could sense it. The spire was invisibly warping the space around it. It was like when you were a kid and your teacher had you sprinkle iron filings on a magnet. Tonight, there'd be no deer crossing signs, no air conditioners, no dates that didn't line up right on a family's tombstone. But soon, there would be the bells. Right here, right in front of me. My hand trembled as I reached out towards it. My cold fingers traced their way across the spire's wooden surface as lovingly as they had Alina's skin. And it was even more luxurious. I circled around the spire, trailing my hand along its seamless joints across its flawless paint. I found the window with its panes kicked out, and I wished I had the skill to fix it. Then a better thought occurred to me. I could go in. I could be in the room with the bells when they sounded. And this is when I'd like to pose the question to the narrator. Do we not remember the two zombie animatronic people that are supposedly in this building? Well. Because I feel like that's important. It feels You know, it maybe feels I wouldn't want to go in there if there were some Freddy Fazbear fucking creations lurking around in the darkness. I pushed my duffel bag through the window, then cautiously, gently, I poked my head in. I didn't meet any resistance, not exactly, but the energy the spire radiated built in intensity. My scalp tingled, my face felt flush, and my brain sang with excitement as if all my neurons were firing all at once. Eagerly, I pressed my shoulders through the gap in the window. It was a tight fit but I wriggled and squeezed my way into the darkness until I managed to get my hips through. I waited a moment for my eyes to adjust, but it was no use, 
Outside, I could see, by the moonlight, the trees and their shadows stood out starkly against the white snow, but inside there was nothing. I struggled to open my duffel bag, ice had formed between the teeth of the zipper, and my fingers, still numb from the cold, had trouble gripping the slider. But eventually it opened enough for me to get my fingers in and force it the rest of the way. The flashlights were, of course, gone. The incense was completely destroyed, and my mother's Bible only fared a little better. Half of its pages had gotten wet when I'd used the bag to pull Carrie out of the water and were now frozen together in a block. I found my grandfather's lighter beneath the raft I'd borrowed from Christy. Lighter fluid's freezing point is absurdly low, something like negative 240 degrees Fahrenheit, so despite having been left outdoors on a frozen lake covered in the snow for a month, it had actually lit on the third try. The meager orange flame seemed so bright. I was on a small landing at the top of a flight of stairs. The landing was no bigger than a coffee table and made of plain, unfinished wood that, unlike the beautiful exterior, had been badly warped by years of trapped moisture freezing and thawing inside of it. There was a hand railing in a similar condition. I was hesitant to lean against it as I held the lighter out over the abyss and peered down. The stairs wrapped around the outer wall of the spire and disappeared into the darkness. In the flickering light, I could just barely make out a heavy beam stretched across the gap between the winding stairs two floors below me. That had to be where the bells hung. It never entered into my mind that I'd find anything down there but the bells. It never occurred to me to wonder how Amy Lowell Putnam would feel about me descending into her home, into the room where her husband had threaded metal rods into her flesh while she was still very much alive, into the bowels of the clockwork that hourly displayed her to the townspeople so her friends and neighbors could be entertained as her corpse zipped along its track. I wish I had but my every thought was occupied by the goddamn bells. My first few steps down the weathered stairs were slow and cautious. I'd test each step with my foot before fully shifting my weight, ready to pull myself back at the first sign of danger. They were slick, their surface covered in a fine layer of frost, and they bowed and creaked beneath me, but they held, and with each step I grew bolder, my pace quickening. By the time I'd reached the next landing, I was coming down the stairs like a kid on Christmas morning. I felt like one, two, eager to unwrap the presents waiting for me below. I started taking the stairs two at a time. The lighter's orange flame sputtered as I gained speed, threatening to blow out. A laugh, a mirthful childish giggle bubbled up from deep within me. I could just make out, faintly, the shape of the bells. They were right there. From the next landing, they'd be so close, I'd be able to reach out and touch the nearer of the two. I leapt down the last three steps, the lighter went out, and the landing collapsed beneath me. I fell through two pitch-black stories. My body flailed, desperate to find purchase on anything. But the only thing I managed to connect with was the floor. 
My feet hit first and I had the queasy feeling of the wood shattering beneath me this time, though. Only one or two floorboards gave out and I came to a stop with a sickening crack as my chest slammed into the ground. The wood floor, though bowed and weathered, didn't afford my hands any purchase and I could feel the weight of my legs and stomach dragging the rest of me towards another fall through God only knows how much more inky blackness. I kicked with all of my strength, but couldn't get my legs up high enough to climb out of the hole I'd created. In that moment, I can't even truly say that I felt panic. I was a cornered rat, all claws and gnashing teeth, a primal thing incapable of thought or feeling, governed by adrenaline, and that basest of instincts, survival. I curled my fingers into hooks and thrashed with everything I was worth, clawing my way to safety. The pain of it all crept into my mind slowly as the adrenaline wore away. The fall had knocked the wind out of me, and as I'd later find out, broken two of my ribs. I can't say how long I lay there on my back struggling to pull air back into my lungs, but I can say that every breath I took felt like it was going to rip me open from the inside. I gritted my teeth and attempted to sit up. My chest felt like it was on fire. I put my hands back behind me to push myself into a seated position and felt the sharpest pain in my life. I had lost three fingernails, those of my left index and middle fingers and my right ring finger, while pulling myself out of the hole in the floor. But what really hurt, what felt even worse than my ribs, was the four-inch splinter that had stabbed beneath the nail of my right index finger and slid out the other side just above the first joint. I collapsed back to the ground. My hand trembled as I brought my finger to my mouth. I hesitated for a moment, trying to think if there was any way to avoid what I was about to do, but there wasn't. I was four, maybe five stories below ground in the woods on an island in the middle of a frozen reservoir, surrounded by more woods miles away from the nearest soul. No one was coming to help me. I bit down on the splinter and pulled it back out the way it come. My mind screamed the profanities my lungs couldn't bear to push out, and it was just four slender inches. Nothing compared to what Amy Lowell Putnam had endured. Though they were raw and bloody, my fingers probed the floor around where I lay, searching for the lighter. The only thing I found was one of my fingernails embedded between the two floorboards. I thought about prying it out, but couldn't imagine what good it'd do to me. It's not as though I could slide it back into place. Once I was sure the lighter wasn't within arm's reach, I found myself wondering if I even wanted to find it. A part of me knew I'd eventually have to if I didn't want to starve or freeze to death but beneath the spire, but it hurt so much more to move. And hadn't I come here to surrender myself to the bells one more time? Wasn't that what I really wanted? It was. So I sat, alone, in the cold and the dark, waiting for the widower's clock to strike eleven. The clapper of the bells struck their surface with the force of a cannonball. In that instant, suddenly there was light. It was a soft light, but after the total darkness at the bottom of the clock tower, I find the way it glinted off the innumerable gears and tracks and coils filling the room, blinding like a glare of the winter sun bouncing off the snow. 
A man spoke, his voice small and distant. So, Anakin, you've heard my bells. <laughs> Why did I know you were going to do it? <laughs> no, it's, it's supposed to be an old man doing an old man voice. So, you've heard my bells. Adolf Riefler stood, a bent old man, before his workbench. His face was wrinkled and he leaned heavily on a cane, but his eyes burned with an intensity that belied his frail voice. When he spoke again, I noticed his lips didn't move. You're missing what you've come so far to see. I stood almost automatically and was surprised to find that although I, I could still feel my injured ribs and see the blood trickling from my mangled fingers, I could move with relative ease. Adolf turned back to his bench. The stairs behind you will lead you out. I marched across the wood floor where the hole I just created should have been. I was dimly aware of the same dreamy feeling I'd had outside of Alina's house when I had felt compelled to watch her screw Ryan Dorset. I'm not sure if I listened to Adolf because I wanted to, although, make no mistake, I did want desperately to see the widower's clock, or because I had no choice. It felt almost as though I was watching myself as I headed towards the stairs. Be sure to try the Marmokukin. Adolf said. It's really quite good. The stairs dumped me out in the middle of a well-appointed room. An oriental rug ran down the center. Ornately framed paintings hung on the walls between each of the windows. It looked like quite a grand foyer, the perfect entrance to any courthouse or place of business, out to impress the public. The carpet led to a huge pair of double doors, and I went to them without a second thought. They opened with ease, despite their size, onto a summer night and what appeared to be a party. There were maybe two dozen or so men and half dozen women all sporting, old-fashioned suits and dresses, the sort of things they likely only wore to weddings and special occasions. They all stared up over my head, expressions of awe plastered dumbly over their frozen faces. I thought for a moment, just a moment, that they were staring at me, but quickly realized they were watching what I'd come to see. The dance of Riefler's automatons, <laughs> and unbeknownst to them, his wife and her lover. I made my way through the crowd. The bells chimed for only the second time. Time seemed to have become loose, more elastic. My feet were moving at the proper speed, but each tick of the great clock dragged out for several seconds. Tick. It was nauseating. Talk. I took a spot beside a table full of refreshments. A man in a smart-looking uniform stood behind it, but like all the others, he had eyes only for the clock. Helping myself to a plate of marble cake and a heavy silver fork, I turned to finally get my first glimpse of the widower's clock in all its glory. The clock tower was illuminated by electric lights, which surprised me as I thought Einfield had been electrified in the early 1930s. 
It was easily five, maybe six stories in height. Its base was almost as broad as its width of the Riefler's house, and it tapered slowly until it reached the spire. Its white wood paneling gleamed in the electric light as grand and audacious as the Tower of Babel. It blasphemously penetrated the scarlet sky. The second floor was dominated by the tracks where the automatons hourly performed. Adolf Riefler, for all his faults, was truly a masterful engineer. His creations zipped along with such grace and fluidity, it was almost impossible to believe they weren't alive. Except for two, a sluggish southern belle and a stiff-limbed confederate soldier. Ironically, the two most wooden figures on stage were the only two made of actual flesh and blood. Behind Amy Lowell and her lover, a backdrop which must have been nearly a story in height of a grand plantation house on fire, rotated slowly into view. The Union automatons, each equipped with small electric lights designed to look like torches, charged towards the plantation house. They torched their torches to cut out painted up like cotton fields as they went, and everywhere the torches tor the torches touched, a red light turned on beneath the cutouts, illuminating the cotton flowers, revealing that they were made of glass and sparkling as though they were actually on fire. As the troops reached the plantation house, another group of automatons rose to greet them, slaves. I cringed when I saw the slave automatons, they were such racist caricatures. The slaves set about beating their former owners, much to the delight of the New England audience who hooted and cheered as the Rebs received their comeuppance. The Southern Bell and Confederate automatons crumpled beneath the attack, their bodies folding in on themselves in a way that was only impossible if their spines had been broken in multiple locations. The slaves grabbed Amy Lowell's corpse and dragged it off stage. Two of the slave automatons turned as they departed, flashing toothy grins at the spectators. Adolf Riefler was not a subtle man. The bells rang once more just as the Union soldiers shot the prone Confederate automaton. The onlookers burst into applause. Well, most of them did. I noticed a man just off to my right side hadn't celebrated. He looked bored, as though he'd seen this all before. Something else was off about him, too. He wasn't dressed like the others. He was wearing a t-shirt and jeans. Rob? Maybe. A man, though. Yeah, it's a guy. I wasn't the only one who heard the bells. I wasn't the only one who found the tower. And I wasn't the only one watching the automaton's endless dance. My eyes scanned the crowd. There was an emaciated man in a park ranger's uniform, the bones of his face plainly visible beneath his skin, leaning against the end of the refreshments table. There was a boy in a tie-dyed shirt who looked to be about 13, his slashed wrists covered his corduroys in blood, but he gave his injuries no notice. Were they dead? Was I? Had the fall killed me? Then I noticed another figure sitting alone near the wood line, a young man with a slender build about my height. His skin, burnt to a crisp, was the color of charcoal, and most of his jaw was missing. Robert Edward cannon what was left of his what was left of his skin flaked off his neck as he turned his head and fixed me with his gaze beneath his blackened eyelids his watery eyes were as blue as a clear sky rob patted the ground next to him 
The bells chimed once more, and Rob and I shuddered in bliss. I took a seat next to him. He tried to speak, but his injuries made it impossible to understand. I think he was trying to apologize for killing himself, or maybe he was just sorry to see that I'd followed him to the bells, I don't know. We sat together in silence, watching as another glass backdrop rotated into view. A glasswork of Atlanta, the lights made it flicker as though it was on fire. Time seemed to return to full speed and the bells finished calling out the hour. My body shivered and my ribs screamed. It was pitch black once more and I was sitting with my back against something. A wall, maybe and my ribs let me know, in no uncertain terms, what they did not appreciate this position. Slowly I slid down until I was lying on my back. I couldn't fully process what I'd seen. In his, in his note to Fletch, Rob had said, I will soon join them, staring at her face as she runs the endless race. Had he known he'd be stuck here when he died? Stuck watching the widower's clock, stuck watching Amy Lowell Putnam endlessly running round and round in her automaton her husband had concealed her in. Was I going to be stuck here, too? All I could say for sure was the spell was broken. I never wanted to hear the bells again. <laughs> the cold had numbed my fingers to the point where I could feel little more for my missing nails than a dull ache, and while I was thankful for that small blessing, it also meant that hypothermia and frostbite couldn't be far behind. I needed to find the lighter, I needed to find a way out of there, or my questions about the afterlife would be answered all too soon. I tried pulling myself along the ground with my arms, but the stress in my ribs was too great. I had to push myself across the ground using my legs, and it was painful, but bearable. The darkness was so absolute, I had no idea which way I was facing or where the hole was in the floor. I moved slowly dancing my fingers over the wood like an insect's antenna, hoping to find that little metal lighter that could mean the difference between life and death. I was beginning to panic. I'd searched an area maybe twice the length of my body and found nothing. Not even the far wall. The room had to be huge. I could barely move. What if the lighter had fallen through the hole I'd made when I hit the floor? I was never going to find it. I began mumbling prayers to myself just to keep my growing sense of despair at bay. Hail Mary, full of grace, our Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. The Virgin Mary, the most exalted woman in all of her Christianity. What could be more comforting than praying to her, the Mother of God? Wasn't I... A child in despair. Don't all despairing children cry out for their mothers? So why did it feel so empty to pray to her now? I didn't know, but elected to continue my work in the oppressive silence. My fingers were so cold and numb the lighter didn't even register when they sent it sliding deeper into the darkness. I only knew I found it because of the sound it made sliding over across the warped planks. I flicked the flint once and nothing, twice and it sparked, three times and it lit. Oh my god. I just, I read ahead and I'm freaked the fuck out. To suddenly see the flame was like staring at the sun, it took my eyes several seconds to adjust, and that's when I noticed I wasn't alone. 
Figures stood all around me, casting long shadows along the floor that disappeared into the edges of the black beyond the lighter's reach. I panicked. I couldn't run, I couldn't fight, but I scrunched up my face and braced for an impact that never came. Slowly I reopened my eyes and, much to my relief, realized that the figures were the automatons. <laughs> After sixty-some-odd years of neglect, they were all in a state of disrepair. Their plaster faces were spider-webbed with cracks, pieces sometimes full limbs laid in heaps around their bases. I was surprised I hadn't encountered any of the tracks which lay around everywhere on the floor, but I suppose I hadn't covered very much area laying around on my back, nor would I be able to leave by doing so. I gritted my teeth and, despite the pain, forced myself up onto my feet. The plaster bodies of the automatons seemed small, scarcely five feet in height, and as I picked my way slowly between them, it made Amy Lowell and her lover, having been hidden inside one of these things, seem all the more grotesque. There was no way Adolf could have done it without chopping off their hands and feet. <laughs> one by one I climbed the stairs, taking frequent breaks when the pain in my ribs grew too intense for me. Eventually I drew even with the bells which appeared to be rusted fast to the thick iron rings from which they hung. I don't know why this surprised me so much. I guess somewhere in the back of my mind I thought they'd be made of polished. <laughs> I said polished. <laughs> polished silver and sparkle like starlight. In time I reached the collapsed landing, or rather reached where it should have been. Now there was nothing but a gap five feet across with the staircase continuing its upward climb on the far side. It would have been easy enough to jump if my ribs weren't broken, and I trusted the wood on the other side to hold my weight, but they were broken and I was terrified of taking another fall. I sat down on the steps and cried, utterly convinced that I would die there and join Rob and Adolf and Amy Lowell in front of the widower's clock every hour on the hour for all eternity. It wasn't fair. Yes, I had chosen to investigate the spire in the woods, but I didn't choose to crave the bells. I didn't choose for them to warn me when I was cold or comfort me when I was scared. I didn't choose to black out at the sight of Alina melting around Ryan Dorset's member. And I certainly wouldn't claim to have been in the right mind when, just an hour earlier, I chose hearing the bells one more time over searching for a way out. The lighter closed with a snap that echoed in the darkness. I had been a Catholic my whole life, but as I sat there on the edge of the broken stairs, straining to see even the faintest sliver of moonlight from the window that laid beyond my reach, I knew that my faith was gone. I had set out to find evidence that there was more to creation than could be explained by science, and though I'd certainly found that, I felt more alone in the universe than ever. What kind of a god would create a world so cruel that it contained the bells? How could I pretend there was a design and a moral underpinning governing the universe when something as innocuous as a beautiful sound could rob you of your free will and by all indications damn you for it? Eventually I got tired of staring at nothing. It was too cold to keep sitting there. I lit the Zippo and headed back down the stairs. I needed to find a way to warm up. 
My duffel bag was sitting a few feet from the hole I had created in the fall. I pulled out the raft and briefly considered inflating it. It would have been nice to not have to lie directly on the cold, hard floor, but ultimately I decided it would be best to use it as a blanket. It occurred to me that there might be something useful in the floor below. Oh, Jesus Christ. I crept as close to the edge of the hole as I dared, held the lighter over the chasm, and peered down. It looked like most of the room below had been claimed by groundwater that had frozen solid. If the planks that had broke my ribs hadn't held, I doubt I would have survived slamming into that ice. Lying back down hurt like hell. The raft didn't seem like it was going to do much for me, but any insulation was better than none. Reluctantly, I closed the lighter. It didn't have an unlimited supply of fuel. I had to be careful with it. Waiting for midnight, shivering in the dark, my mind kept conjuring images of Rob Kennan's face, his one good eye watering. I really didn't want to join him, but at the same time I couldn't wait to be warm again. With a deafening clang, the bells tolled. It was midnight, and I once again found myself lying on the floor of Adolf Riefler's workroom. You're back. He never looked at me, just continued to scan the rows of wrenches that hung from the wall. People don't usually come back quite so soon. I can't get out. The stairs broke. I'm sorry to hear that. His voice was filled with pity, but his unmoving lips retained their scowl. He took a wrench from the wall and began picking his way back through the tangled mess of gears that seemed to only exist when the bells were ringing. I followed him to a hidden corner of the room where the Southern Bell and Confederate soldier automatons stood. Adolph's deft fingers pushed the dress down over the Southern Bell's shoulder, exposing a bolt in her back. He slipped the wrench over and set to work. From beneath the lacquered wood, Amy Lowell's bones splintered and popped. My stomach revolted at the sound, and I looked for a place to retch. Adolf continued to smile as he gave the bolt another turn. You mustn't judge me too harshly, came his sad little voice. You can't fathom the regret, the burden I carried with me for the rest of my life. He pulled her dress down further, pausing only briefly to admire his handiwork as he exposed the majority of the automaton's body before continuing on to the next bolt. I loved my wife. Despite her faults, her vanity, her frivolity, I loved her. She was mine. His hands slid up her body, pulling her dress back into place. But there was no pleasing her. He lifted her arm up by the wrist and let go. Her hand jerked and jerked. Herked and jerked. Great. Herked and jerked as it fell back into place. Shiza! 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 He yelled, his lips moving with each curse. He grabbed the automaton by her hand and twisted it violently, in a way no neck could bend. Grab her head. What did I say? Hand. Shit. He grabbed the automaton by her head and twisted it violently in a way no neck could bend. It sounded like cracking knuckles. The automaton's blank eyes seemed to stare right at me. 
They were such a lovely shade of brown. I was lost in those eyes and thoughts of Alina until Adolf's wrench returned to work, and the sounds of the bones crunching shook me from my revelry. You mustn't doubt my love for her. Adolf whispered through his closed lips. What you're seeing? I was simply angry then. It was a malady of spirit, and I admit that I have a temper. But, like squalls on the open sea, my foul moods disappear uh, almost as quickly as they come. Taken against the rest of our marriage, not to mention the courtship, this was a moment, a fleeting moment. And it wasn't as though she was blameless. You can't. Possibly know, possibly understand the humiliation of seeing another man take what is rightfully yours. I felt compelled to speak. I've always hated it when someone challenged my experiences. It made me feel so small, but it was more than that. My mouth moved, and it was like I was outside of my body, listening to myself tell Adolf all about Alina and what I'd done to Ryan Dorset. So, you do understand. He sounded relieved, as if I'd given him absolution for his sins. The bells tolled. Adolf gave the bolt on the automaton's elbow a full turn, splintering Amy Lowell's bones. It was loud, like a branch snapping off a tree in a storm. He again lifted her arm and let it fall. He must have been pleased with the results because he set down his wrench and headed towards the stairs. I followed him without thinking. And that's all we are going to read today. He is having a, uh, a little spooky adventure through time and space, it seems. There's some ghostly scenario. Yeah, it's a little interesting. Playing out in front of him right now. Um, I, you know, they keep saying his lips aren't moving, so he might be like an automaton himself. Huh. Yeah. Is what I'm thinking, or at least that's what his mind is conjuring. I don't know if the spirits are actually there. I don't know if it's his mind playing tricks on him. I, I don't know what way the author is going to want to spin this when he's out of the spire, because it's, like, heavily implied that he makes it out of the spire. So it's just like, you know, is he gonna call it a psychological fault? You know, is he gonna go to a mental institution when he comes back, claim it was all insanity, and try to, you know, absolve himself of his sins? Or is he gonna come back spouting ghosty ghosts and telling people shit's haunted? Or is he dead? Or is he dead? The plot holes, you know, argument. Do we have an unreliable narrator? Can we trust what he's saying? Is is he actually alive recounting these events for us right now? Um, I know that the conclusion is shorter. Like, I know the next part is going to be shorter than this episode. The page count is less. Um, but I think this was the last big bulk before the final stretch. And I, uh, I'm excited to see how it ends. I, I hate that I'm going to have to wait another like, two or so weeks to, to read it, but I, I don't, I don't forget what happens the way, you know, Baraska kind of hit me. 
or the way the ABC series hit me, you know, where things are so disjointed and not as compelling. I, it's, it's hard to, um, it's hard to forget where we're at right now. I think, you know, finally getting to the spire, finally seeing what's inside and how he's reacting to things. It's again, not quite what I expected. Yeah, I almost expected know, him to go down there, and then when the bell's told, I'm a much more visceral person with horror. You know, if I were writing this, I would make it so that the bell's toll, but he hears something else, and he's drawn towards that sound. And then it turns out that, like, the automatons are still zipping along, doing their thing, even though they're all decayed and shit. And it's just like, that would be haunting, you know, if there was almost a lively element to the way that the... Amy Lowell and her lover were, you know, flitting along in their robot bodysuits, um, all decayed and shit. Like, is it kind of weird? Adolf Riefler is... Kind of like a spirit automaton himself? However they want to go about that? Oh, no, I meant, is it weird that he is a character? A character? Yeah. Um, it is a little weird. For me, it's a little weird. I think it's a little weird because... We don't need his character to exist to understand the link between the narrator and Riefler. I felt like a lot of that ending stuff we just read was a little pointless. Like, we're smart. We can, like, you don't have to spell things out. We, as your audience, are following along. We understand. You don't need the main character to have a discussion with his foil. You know, we're smart enough to understand what the foil's purpose is. You know, the the, the nursery rhyme, the, the story, the fable of Adolf has been pretty evident since since the chapter before where Oh yeah. He was getting cucked by Alina. You know, it's we didn't need their entire point you know, that's almost the capstone of this chapter. We worked all the way to the spire just for Adolf Riefler to kind of turn around and be like, hey, women suck, eh, kid? <laughs> you know, like, one of the... He's, like, sipping coffee. He's like, fucking well, bitches, am I right? It's a little annoying because it just sort of negates... The haunting. The impact it, 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 that it should It negates have the bells, universal. yeah, a little bit. It negates the purpose of the story a little bit. Because, like, then, then why does everyone else... Why would Carrie... The, the, what's the motivation behind Carrie... For instance, hearing it's, the bells. It's weird. What I'm saying is it's unresolved. It's Hopefully we learn something next chapter that makes it make more sense to me. Because the fact that some people are scared of it and some people are in love with it is kind of... broken. Like, yeah. there, it's almost like... With that whole flashback sequence with seeing the ghosts of all the people who have been drawn to the bells throughout time... Like, the, the tie-dye shirt kid, yeah. the, the older guy in jeans, you know, Rob. It's just like, okay, so these bells have reached out to other people. We knew that already. So, again, retreading what we already know. And at the same time, kind of breaking your own lore in the sense that, like, well, Carrie wasn't, you know, coming every time the bells rang, you know... Fletch obviously feels a little bit more haunted by them now, you know, so it's just... Is the spell stronger on others than it is on others? Obviously. But is that a discernible 
plot in the story, I don't know. A lot is up for question, and I'm not really going to negate anything. I, I'm not going to say I'm disappointed because the story's not over yet. I'm just going to say that I wanted the desperation to have more consequences. I wanted this experience to fuck the character up, not give him someone to relate to and have a cathartic conversation with. I agree. I want this to be a creepypasta. Yeah. If, if, am I am I not listeners, am I not allowed to to ask for the creeps for an extra side and extra helping this of really, the spoops? This really this whole story has not felt like I like the madness of the bells. Sure. It's very Lovecraftian. There's, there's but, mystery. but you can't you can't have the Cthulhu madness without the Cthulhu. Then you just have a bunch of screaming people running around talking about the end times and a giant monster. There's nothing yeah, okay, giant monster, fish people, whatever. But then when you actually show, you know, like a fucking sea monster god floating through time and space owning the fucking universe in his dick hole, then, you know, your scale of madness, you know, increases tenfold. Oh, fuck. Is that real? Is this happening? Am I... What is the point of life? Is that a giant god? Is that a thing? What madness ensues? You know, I, I just... I guess what I'm saying is... You know, mini golf player, you got no drive. Yeah. What? Wait. What do you mean? Because <laughs> you're just putting. Just putting along. Oh. <laughs> Not playing the real golf game. Ain't got no drive. <laughs> it's yeah. it's tough. I, I hope... I hope... You like, put it perfectly le- by saying... <laughs> yeah, this whole story was about... The narrator going through everything to get to the point where Adolf Riefler can be like, yeah, women suck. (laughs) And he pats him on the back, sends him on his way. I'm glad to see things haven't changed in 200 years, am I right? He just pats him on the back. Yeah, but this totally justifies me. I knew you were going to do the Apollo voice. (laughs) Women, am I right? (laughs) (laughs) Right, Rob. (laughs) Yeah, right, man. And then, like, crispy crispy Rob over there is like, So yeah, let me let me make before we end the recording. I want to make one prediction, and it's it's about Palpatine, isn't it? No, <laughs> listen. <laughs> so allow me one prediction, which is a prediction I like to make on these longer stories, and it's the downplay prediction. How do I not want this story to end? Because this this statement right here will determine my disappointment or not in the next episode. Do you want me to... I think we both... I think we both could do it. Do you want to go first? Sure. How do you not want this story to end? Alina and Dorset end up alive. That's how I... We already know they're alive. I'm saying I want them to die. (laughs) I know, and I'm saying we already know in the narrative that Alina is alive at at the narrator's current age. So, basically, I'm... I'm, this just turned out to what I want. So, I, I hope that this is a faulty narrative. Or a faulty narrator. Yeah, or, unreliable or unt- narrator. Yeah. I don't know. Which You should have read plot lines, man. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. I no, took, no. I took that from you. Um, nah, plot lines is one of those stories, man, where you're just like, 
This guy keeps talking in past tense, like, this happened to him a while ago. Wow, that's believable. And then the end is like, oh, by the way, I'm dead. And you're just like, what? <laughs> you know, and it probably won't be like that for It's this. absolutely not going to be like that. There's no way something this coming-of-age, teenage, pubescent... Yeah. This was made for creepypasta, you know? You kind of have to take a step back and say this is not award-winning writing. Sure. This is some teenager saying, I want to write a fun story about a madness in the woods with bells, but I don't know how to end it. Well, anyway, that's what how I hope it doesn't end. That, that <laughs> characters end up alive. Yeah. Or stay alive. That there's no threat, that there's no actual... Yeah. What's the word? Payoff. <coughs> Payoff is a good word, but... I'm thinking more, there's no, there's no juice, there's no, nothing is worth the squeeze, there was, everything was pulled punches, there's no, um, there's no real threat. To take, to take away the, um, ooh, man, I just had this thought, to take away the threat of any creepypasta story is almost to undo the creepypasta narrative. If you remove threat, what's your compelling argument? What situation... Your narrator just exists. Yeah. If you take away the threat, then we're just reading a story. We're not reading a creepypasta. That's, so, fun. That's a funny thought. How does this hold up as being one because, of the best? And that's... That's up for debate. There have been some horrifying elements, like Amy Lowell Putnam and the automatons. Sure. But is that enough for me to, you know, continue getting creeped out till the very end? Not really. Not not what I'd say. Yeah. I would I would say Five Nights at Freddy is actually scarier than this. <laughs> like, and Five Nights at Freddy is not something to be scared of in general. Um, but it's still like Five Nights at Freddy feels more creepypasta than this shit. And I'm not trying to say that in a derogatory tone. I still very much like this story. I just think at this point, episode 144, we're allowed to be a little bit more critical of what we're looking for, and, and I'm told time and time again that that's the commentary people like listening to us talk about. Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, my position on the story is that I dislike it, because <laughs> for, let's say, 70% of it, it's been like this, um, you, you keep referring to it as the coming-of-age story, and I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm reading something off of Teen Nick. Degrassi. Degrassi. Something yeah. like that. Skins. Sure. Understandable, and I don't take that as a derogatory thing. I call coming of age because that's technically what it is. It's, it's the moment that changes a child from being a child to being an adult. Even if they're young, it's the moment... This guy is recounting the moment in his life where he... His perception was altered in a way that it changed his life. Therefore, you have to imply that his... You know, his life... You know, his life was changed. He... His level of understanding, no matter what it was about, is altered forever. And that is a... Uh, that is a life-changing thing from a, a child to an adult. Being able to come to grips with your own mortality, um, maybe seeing the, 
the needlessness and pain and futility of young love. That's often a very popular coming-of-age stereotype, specifically in those John Green books. Man falls in love with girl, both of them have cancer, you think the girl's the one who's gonna die, it ends up being the guy. What a twist. Um, let, let me answer the question now. How do I not want this to end? He has a beer with Adolf Riefler, a nice German lager, and, and Adolf <laughs> says, Alright, I will see you again, goodbye. And then he just leaves the spire, walks home, zero consequences to any of his actions, claims insanity, his parents take him in, try to get him some serious help, he gets over to the bells. He's writing this story now because some, you know, from time to time he'll still hear the bells, and we're left to believe that the narrator is just a little crazy, and that's the point of the story. It's like, uh, fuck! Oh my god! I just made a great connection in my head. This is Perks of Being a Wallflower, but for creeps. <laughs> this movie is Perks of Being a Wallflower, but for creepy assholes. Instead of not understanding women and being, like, an anxious and, like, damaged individual, it's not understanding women because of creepypasta bullshit. <laughs> he tries to take advantage of have a relationship with a, a woman who's out of his depth and understanding and out of his league, quite literally. Um, she turns on him and makes him very selfish and suicidal and kind of stalkery. His uh, relationship at school is altered when people think he's a weirdo. Blah, blah, blah. Narrator turns around, has cathartic understanding with someone, and end of story. Comes to terms with I, their I have trouble. I have trouble finding sympathy with him. The narrator. Yep. It's fair. It's fair. Almost, well, every, think... almost everything he's done at this, in this... And the story has been his own fault. And I can't tell if that's due to the way it's written and it's intentional, or if it's just... It is absolutely intentional. Yeah. Well, it is absolutely... It does I, its job. And I, and I like this... I got this saying recently. Um, I forget from where... I think it's American Gods. Um, so quote me if I am wrong, please. Um... It is not in human nature to be suicidal um, or to be viewed suicidal because you are, like, human and, and, you know, mortality is this big fucking thing. But it is very much human to be self-destructive. Sometimes people take the risks fully knowing the outcomes of their actions simply to feel alive. You know, um, it's, t it's tough to give a specific example, but I think, um, I think, like, cutting is probably, like, the closest I could think of that relates to that. Like, the use of cutting, it's not necessarily saying that you want to be dead, it's saying that you want to feel something, even though it's a very destructive process physically and emotionally why people jump out of planes and go bungee jumping and climb Mount Everest and go swimming with sharks. There's just a 
there's a tenacity to human nature that makes it kind of self-destructive, and I think someone like Robert Kennan or someone like our narrator is fully aware of their destructive qualities, uh, self-destructive qualities, and is kind of just giving in to the ghost at this point. Yeah. Literally. In the story. I don't hate it. I don't hate it, either. I, uh... It's better than The Last Jedi. Fuck. <laughs> Is that... Do you want to end on that? I don't hate it either. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>